everyone. I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer, and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Motherkind podcast. This week I am chatting to Tamu Thomas who is the founder of a wellness brand which is aimed at women in their late 30s and 40s and it's called 360. It's brilliant. Definitely look it up once you've listened to the podcast. So Tamu delivers her work through life coaching, group work, public speaking. She also has a podcast and she does lots of blogging and writing as well. And Tamu's passion is helping women find their joy and we talk on this episode about joy and what joy is to Tamu and how actually an existential crisis in her late 30s turned her life upside down in the best way possible that enabled her to start finding joy for life again. What I realised is that as human beings we would probably be better off if we turn it upside down and start with joy and work from a stable base of joy. So we chat about her experience of anxiety and depression, how she realised she had a productivity addiction. I was definitely somebody that confused achievement with fulfilment and I kept working harder and harder and doing more, doing full-time job, having a side hustle. We talk about self-kindness and compassion and linking that to inner child work, which is something that I'm talking about on the podcast and on Instagram more and more at the moment. And of course, the one gift that she would give to all mums. And we chat in this episode a lot about taking little moments to reconnect to ourselves and how important that is. And if you were listening, wondering, oh, I don't know what to do in those 10 minutes or half an hour or however long you might have, I've done a download for you all, which is just 10 ideas, really powerful ways that you can take anything between two minutes to two hours to reconnect to you. So if you want that, just pop onto my website, motherkind.co, pop in your email and I'll send it across to you. I hope you really enjoy this episode. Here it is. So Tammy, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. So we first met when we attended a rather extraordinary women's circle together, didn't we? Yeah. And I've wanted to chat to you and share some of your wisdom with my audience for ages. So I'm so happy that this is happening. I'm so happy to be on a podcast that has hosted the likes of Marianne Williamson and Dr. Gabor Mate. I'm just like, what? Yeah, this is your life. (laughs) So we are going to talk about joy 
And I was reflecting a bit on this earlier because I think a lot of what I do on the podcast is have quite heavy, deep conversations. And I know sometimes in my life I can forget that the purpose of all this inner work is for me to find joy and to live in a place of joy. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. My first question is, what does joy mean to you? Joy for me is a very calm, peaceful, contented space. Like literally that is it. It is space where I am operating in a zone, let's say, where I can notice small, beautiful things that we often overlook in the midst of busyness, beautiful things that are hidden in plain sight that can be quite meditative and inspirational and even guiding, and we overlook because we are running around. So I guess I could say it's a very similar feeling for me to contentment, but it has a bit of a higher vibration than contentment for me. I love that, noticing small beautiful things. Mm -hmm. Have you always been good at connecting to your joy or do you do this work today because you struggle to? As a child, I remember moments of being very connected to my joy. I was an only child for seven years and had lots of time creating my own joy. But then at around the age of seven, that's a really clear marker in my life. Things changed in a way that I was really aware of. And I internalized messages saying that I shouldn't be joyful. So my parents are West African, my parents are from Sierra Leone. And my dad would say things to me like, Tammy, you're not serious. Your head is full of play. You need to be serious. And it was kind of, I'd come home and say, oh, I've got eight out of 10 for this thing. And my dad was definitely of the school where it was like, that's fine, but what about nine or 10? So as I got older, Joy definitely became something that I guess in our current living and learning environment, I would say that joy for me, the way that I understood joy was tinged with shame because of the environment I was growing up in. I definitely didn't tap into my joy properly until I started edging towards it around the age of 39. I started to think about my life very differently because I was definitely, well, I still am a productivity addict. I was definitely somebody that confused achievement with fulfillment. And I kept working harder and harder and doing more, doing full-time job, having a side hustle, being a single mom, trying to be like mum and dad. And I was just not getting any fulfillment anywhere. It literally felt like my world started to crash down around me when I was around 38 and I really went on a deep self-discovery journey and as I peeled back the layers it was quite harrowing and it took me to what was for me a very dark place and then I thought okay it's okay I'm going to be 40 soon and for some reason 40 was always my magic number and I thought that's it it's going to be the 24th of June I'm going to be 40 and da-da this sparkling life that begins at 40 will ensue. And yeah, it was all great for the first week. My surprise birthday party that wasn't a surprise was fantastic. 
And then I was like, oh my goodness, this doesn't look or feel anything remotely like I thought it would. But I didn't really have an idea of what it would look like. I didn't do any preparation for this wonderful world that I was going to be living in at the age of 40. And I had an existential crisis. This crisis, I would say, lasted about eight years, but I just denied it and filled it with work and with busyness and side hustles and helping people and taking on projects. And then I literally got to a space where I was like, I haven't liked myself for a really, really long time. I can't remember when I liked myself last. And I noticed that I was really snapping at my daughter for doing things that she should be doing and that she should have been doing at that age. And I just thought, I've always been very keen. When people use terms like bringing up their children, I don't bring up my daughter. I love her up. And I didn't feel like I was loving her up anymore. So I went to the GP to have a discussion because I started experiencing what I was describing as heightened periods of anxiety. Went to the doctor straight away. She did a test that I'd already done that concluded I was experiencing severe, moderate depression and anxiety. So straight away she offered me pills and I'm just like, that's not it. That's not what I need. I had a consultation with a psychotherapist and when I explained these heightened periods of anxiety, she said, those aren't heightened periods of anxiety. Those are panic attacks. And I was like, what? Because my background is social work and I had worked with people that experienced anxiety and panic attacks and they weren't all necessarily from a poor or low socioeconomic group. I've worked with people at all spectrums of society, but because of the condition they were in, I couldn't see that within me, so I didn't associate any words like that or labels like that with me. And then I actually went and saw a psychologist, and as the discussion unfolded, it was all good, but it didn't feel right, and it wasn't anything to do with shame. I think if you're 40 years old, you probably need therapy. There's no way you've got through this life without having a need for therapy. But I felt like my soul was empty. I needed to do something to fill my soul. I didn't think it was something that a clinical model or biomedical model would be able to assist me with. I definitely felt like it was about me connecting with my higher self and connecting with God, divine guidance, whatever. I'm not fussed about the name, but the higher power that I feel governs all of our existence. I just felt that connection was lacking. And I felt, but I didn't quite understand that my grandmother who passed, well, I thought it was my maternal grandmother, but it's not, it's my paternal grandmother. I just felt her around all the time, but I didn't quite understand it. The first place I went was Marianne Williamson, and I was like, oh my goodness gracious me, this is it. I realised that I'd got things upside down. I was living and working because I needed to achieve this thing, I needed to do this thing, I needed to be more efficient, I needed to be more productive, then I'd be joyful. And through my existential crisis and my personal development journey, really delving into some shadow work, what I realised is that As human beings, we would probably be better off if we turn it upside down and start with joy and work from a stable base of joy. So whether you dip down or you have a heightened experience, you've got this stable base of joy to return to. And that's how I found my joy. It's such an incredible story, but also such a familiar one. I was lucky that my crisis came when I was 23. I was very young. 
that. Yeah. But I was the same, you know, ticking outside boxes, doing everything right, busy, successful, looked good, had friends. I felt very empty on the inside. And I often say that to clients today about turning. I literally turned everything that I thought I knew about life upside down. So when you started to turn your life upside down, because I know there's a lot of people who are going to be listening, really relating to where you were at 38, you know, ticking those boxes, avoiding yourself through busyness, snapping at your daughter, Mm -hmm. just not feeling life. What were some of the challenges that you came across in your awakening, let's call it, to your happier self, to your truest self? And how did you overcome them? And how would you advise someone else might overcome them? Well, I didn't realise that I had a productivity addiction because I've been brought up, work hard, work your hardest, do your best. My parents, although they did compare me to other people, which was like the West African way, it was always, if you've done this today, you've got to do better tomorrow. And I'm black, so it was, you've got to work 10 times harder for half the recognition. One of the things that was really challenging is that this felt really self-indulgent. It felt like a privilege that was not bestowed upon people that look like me, that started off life in a working class background, 13th floor of a tower block. I watched my mum in particular work really hard and she did, you know, ascend up the social ladder. But still, coming from the background I came from, I mocked myself. I judged myself and I mocked myself because I felt like I was being weak. I felt like I was being spoilt. I felt like I was being really privileged, entitled and indulgent. So that was really, really difficult. So for every act of vulnerability, there were huge acts of chastisement and self-sabotage and critique. Like if I heard somebody even in the street speaking to somebody the way my internal dialogue went, I would have stopped. I would intervene. That was really, really difficult because I really did internalise and believe these things. The other thing that was really, really difficult for me was that I realised how judgmental I was in relation to every bloody thing and how that judgment was a direct reflection of how I was judging myself. Even as I say that, I feel a bit of pain because it really wasn't nice. It really wasn't loving. It really wasn't kind. If this was a friendship, it would be a toxic friendship. So that was really, really difficult for me. It was also really difficult. So as I said, my background is social work. So I was in a position where I had to advise people, play God, in essence, with people's lives. And I totally embodied that. So I would then carry that through into my personal life with myself and also with other people. So confronting that was really challenging because I just saw so many elements of myself that I didn't like. And I really indulged in that. Like people will slide into my DMs and we'll have a conversation about it because I say very often, shit is fertilizer, but it's only fertilizer if you don't stay there for too long. Otherwise you end up sinking. I was reeking. And I thought, hang on a minute. If I had got this far in life with all of that, imagine what I could do with being kind and loving towards myself with all of that information I have. Diamonds are made in the dirt, aren't they? 
And I just thought, wow, there's a lot of power in my story. There's a lot of triumph. And actually, so this is where I'm going to go a bit left. What I have realised and what I believe to be true since I really have taken a deep dive into personal development work and the world of spirituality, I'm very connected to my ancestors and I have in various ways recreated the experience of my ancestors in my modern life, even though my life doesn't require it. So my parents are from West Africa, as I've said. The ethnic group that my mum comes from are a group of people that were enslaved, that returned to Africa, or people that were being taken from various parts of Africa to the New World. And when slavery was abolished, Freetown in Sierra Leone was set up, and it's called Freetown because that's where freed slaves were. So I know that my lineage travelled to the Caribbean, came back, to Africa. And I just feel like I have been living their stories of suffering, endurance, bondage, survival. And what I have come to realise is that my ancestors endured because they had to, my parents survived because they had to, but the baton that I have been passed on is that I can take all of that information and alchemise that shit so I can thrive. So once that dawned on me, I started to think, well, I've just got to do the opposite of what I was doing before. And that's where turning stuff upside down came in. And even I was speaking to a coach, Nancy Florence, and she was talking about the power of your name and what your name means. And I was like, it was written. My name is a Swahili word and it means sweet, tasty, but it also means bring joy. So like literally, I'm saying exactly because I can see Zoe's facial expression. So once I was able, and it was long, I'm 42 now, that process begun at 38. So it's not a quick fix. Anybody that thinks they're just going to stand in the mirror and say, abundance flows all around me, I am beautiful, I am wise. For me, my cells repelled that. I just could not stand it. And when you've had a lifetime of telling yourself you're not good enough, you don't try hard enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not successful enough, all of those sorts of things, you're not lovable enough. You can't just stand in the mirror chanting, I'm loved or whatever. So I just thought, well, when I'm working as a social worker with my families, I would say, we are not going to give this family a massive plan where we're going to try and address all of their difficulties in one. We're going to staircase it. So I literally social worked myself and staircased my way. So, for example, one of my childhood things where my dad would say, oh, your head is full of play, you're not serious. What I worked out is my play is my vitality. And that came by accident. I was doing this on, I think it's called getselfhelp.com. They've got an activity diary. I did a one-day positive psychology day course. Obviously, it's a day course. It was one day. And uh, we had to complete activity diaries where we logged. We kept a contemporaneous record of everything we did for a week. And we marked it A for a sense of achievement, S for satisfaction. And I can't remember what the other one was. And the only time I had a sense of satisfaction in that week was when I took my daughter and her friend roller skating. My daughter was off helping her friend and I was able to just skate that was my satisfaction, enjoyment, my joy, my freedom. I felt really high and I couldn't work out why until I was filling out my activity diary. So I realised that my play is my vitality. 
But because of everything I'd heard throughout my life and the things that I'd internalised, I couldn't just start saying my play is my vitality. I had to work towards it. So I sort of live in between metaphysics and traditional science. So I had to go and look for the science. So when I was reading about the science of play and how it impacts your emotions, I started with something that was giving myself permission to play and worked my way towards being able to, and now I claim it, my play is my vitality. If I don't have time to play in my week, I'm miserable. So I'm able to prioritise it. But it was a long process. So I haven't really got a quick fix suggestion. But what I would say to people is compassion is nice, but show yourself some empathy and think about your limitations. I had a conversation oh, with Gail Mara, who was on your podcast, and uh, we were talking about the critical age of 0-7, and she was explaining that that period is like being in a permanent state of hypnosis. And so when I was thinking about the psychological study I did for social work and the work I've done, and that whole stuff about show me a boy of seven, I'll show you the man he'll become, what I realised was that our inner child is generally between naught and seven. So I need, needed, need to be as empathetic, as gentle and as kind as I would be with a seven-year-old. So when I stumble, rather than automatically going to number 10, I'm a disappointment, I'm a failure, I'm a whatever. Okay, let's have a look at this. What went wrong? No, I even use my daughter's school so when they're marking their work in junior school it would be www what went well ebi even better if so this would be even better if i did x what went well was y so then i started to become friends with my limitations and now i literally say out loud when they show up we're not doing that tamu we're not doing that today it's okay i've got this i've got a child i run a household i've got a business I keep everybody safe. I'm able to pay my bills. I'm a nice human being. So I can look after you. We're going to do this thing. We're going to be safe. So sorry, it's not like directly do one, two, three, because when we're dealing with nourishing our soul, it's not as simple as taking these three steps. No, I totally agree. And the word that's coming up for me as you're talking is reparenting. Absolutely. That is literally what it is. And I talk a lot about reparenting having been through the same mm-hmm. and learnt to reparent myself and I love your staircase analogy what I'm hearing is befriending your critic mm-hmm. befriending that inner child that mm-hmm. zero to seven literally Think, thinking about what makes you feel good what else was on your staircase to joy oh gosh money Actually, do you know what? I'm saying money immediately because that's where it presents itself in a really visceral way. But it's more about receiving. So I'm a strong black woman. I'm an independent woman. I don't need anybody's help, etc. But what I understand very clearly now is I was brought up with very clear messages that vulnerability was weakness. What I believed previously was that receiving put you in a position of vulnerability because I conflated receiving with depending and it's two totally different things. So that has been my biggest one and that has touched every area of my humanity, friendship, romance, money, health, acquiring knowledge, all of that. It has touched all of those areas, some in a more profound way, 
but there hasn't been one area of my life that hasn't been negatively impacted by my former inability to receive. I think that's such a common story. And it's so fascinating to me. We're both raising girls, so I want to talk about that. Often between zero to seven, and as you say, you know, the science is all there. We know Mm -hmm. that's when all these beliefs about ourselves and the world get locked in. And what I see with a lot of modern parenting, zero to seven, is really this push for independence, not to ask for help. Do it on your own. You don't need mummy. Get up. There's nothing wrong with you. And I just see it because obviously that was partly my experience. And for me, asking for help meant that I was weak and it meant that I was wrong and it meant that I couldn't do it on my own. And I didn't ask for help for a long time. And I think you can really struggle in motherhood Mm -hmm. if you are operating from those limiting beliefs that asking for help means that you are somehow a failure. Absolutely. Was that your experience of motherhood as well? Did that really present itself to you? Oh, it's a difficult one because although there are elements of West African culture that is very much pull your bootstraps up and get on with it. The motherhood piece is very, very nourishing. And my mum was very finely balanced because she recalled very clearly how she felt when her mum tried to take over when I was first born. So the help was there. And also, even though I've only got one, but I was born to be a mother, like I'm a mother. So maternal urges, maternal instincts, they come very naturally to me. What I've had to be mindful about in my parenting is how I role model for my daughter. She just is one of those people that wants to get things right the first time. And if she doesn't get it right the first time, she gets really cross with herself. Not like I go out deliberately making mistakes, but I allow her to see my mistakes. I allow her to see my flaws. I remember once we were in the shop and there was an older lady standing near us and she was asking me for something and I had loads of things in my hands. And I turned to her and she looked at me and she said, you've only got one pair of hands. And she was like three years old or something. And the lady looked at me like with a sense of pride because I've never subscribed to martyrdom in motherhood. That's never been my vibe, but I have done absolutely. Like I look back and I think, what was I thinking? My daughter's fifth birthday party, I decided that I was doing pizzas and nuggets and all of this stuff rather than sandwiches and cold food. So I was running backwards and forwards from the oven. I was trying to entertain children playing games. I was watching children on the bouncy castle and my friend came and held me on my arm and she said, we're here. And if I wasn't at that party, I would have cried because I know I needed the help, but the idea of needing the help made me feel really ill inside. So yeah, it's the allowing my daughter to see my whole self and being really open with her so that she is able to be vulnerable. I knew from the very beginning, I wanted her to be able to have difficult emotional conversations with me. My mum is very, very 
tactile, loving, she gives the best hugs, she'll cook your favourite meal when she thinks you're a bit sad. But to have a deep emotional conversation makes her feel so uncomfortable, she's not able to manage it. So I pushed myself out of my comfort zone to be able to have those conversations with my daughter, which now having a 12-year-old that's telling me about crushes and I'm like, I don't really want to know all of this, but I've got to keep it all open and flowing so that we can have these conversations. When she's feeling a bit down about something, she will talk to me about it. And it's just me and her. We've got a beautiful extended family. We're all very close. But in terms of like our little unit, I've been very mindful about making sure that I'm cultivating that and then also you know as much as social work depleted me I was in a situation where to my left there was a psychologist to my right there was a health visitor behind me there was a school nurse so I had a wealth of resources that I could go to and I remember there was one psychologist that I worked with who was based at Great Ormond Street and she said you know the thing is about parenting as long as you're doing your best about 30% of the time you're okay and I was like okay fine but that's it so I haven't really known. And when you think about your daughter and you talked about this lineage and I think that's really profound. It's something I love talking about and exploring is generational cycles. Mm-hmm. What is it that you would want her to know most about this life? So something I talk about a lot these days is having an ecosystem. Like I don't feel like the community I forged in real life and online is just the community. We all feed nutrients into this soil that nurtures us. So what I really want her to know and what I'm trying to model for her now that I'm aware of it is that all of these things that I once perceived as weak, they're actually huge, courageous attributes, being able to ask for help. I was halfway between being like, this is really indulgent and oh my goodness, this is wonderful. There was a day that she was sad at school and there's this really lovely pastoral teacher So she went over and had a word with her because she was feeling a bit sad. It was about science tests. And I was like, A, I'm a bit envious that you have the capacity to be able to go and ask for that help. B, I'm really proud that you were able to ask that help. C, why don't you come to me? And D, what other earth is going on in school these days that you can say you're sad and you can have an appointment with this teacher? But overall, I was just like, wow, this girl understands that she has a right to be well. She has a right to thrive. She has a right to feel good. And she has a right to interrogate and question when she's not feeling that way. So I would really like her to be able to continue in that vein. And also boundaries. She's got boundaries. I didn't have boundaries. And I was listening to her one day having a conversation with my mum And I don't know what had happened. And my mum had said something to her. My mum's loving and all of that, but she's very direct. So she said something along the lines of something that my daughter said or did was dangerous or something. She used the word dangerous. And I overheard my daughter say to my mum, Grandma, I really didn't like it when you said whatever I did or said what was dangerous. That really hurt my feelings. Oh, I feel a bit warm saying it. Yeah. She's 12. It's amazing. Yeah. She's a very switched on. But you know what, Zoe? Because of my experience, you know, my dad's mum died when he was six. 
His dad died before he was born. He was passed from family member to family member. He really made his own way. My grandma is very, very, or was very, very loving. But my mum was brought up from baby to 13 by her auntie in Sierra Leone. And then my granddad was in the RAF. So my grandma travelled around with him. And when they settled in England, they sent for their children. So even though the relationship with her mum was really loving, it was very fractured. So the moment I saw those blue lines on the pregnancy test, I just knew. So my communication with my daughter began from that point in time. It was just a non-negotiable thing. It was just something that had to happen. So powerful to hear you say that really, that that pain and that unconsciousness has stopped with you. And it sounds like it so has. It makes me emotional because I don't think there's a bigger job that we get to do in this life than heal and not pass it on. That's my whole mission with my recovery and, you know, the podcast and everything is how can we not pass on this pain for ourselves? And you know what else, Zoe, that has been really beautiful for me to witness is that... My mum, seeing the work that I do with 360, seeing the way that I have evolved, she has taken stock of herself. So she now does yoga. She doesn't just go to a yoga class. She has one-to-one yoga therapy. And she's wanted to learn how to play the piano forever. She's 60, whatever. She started piano lessons. Mm -hmm. And I just think, something that we need to be aware of. We don't just role model for those that are coming after us. We role model for anybody that's around us. For me to see my mum learning how to play the piano just for the hell of it and being able to bend down, dance at family parties, do things that she was struggling to do previously, that just gives me no end of joy and confirms to me that right here in this moment I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing a quote came up for me I think it might be Marion Williamson which is when we step into our own light we unconsciously give others the permission to do the same and Mm -hmm. I've seen that Mm -hmm. that the quickest way to help someone else is to help ourselves I believe Mm -hmm. that to my core yeah is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to share about the work that you do 3360 before we go on to I'm going to ask you the final question do you know what I love talking so I can say a whole load but I firmly believe now that whatever somebody's supposed to find they'll find it within the conversation we've had yeah I agree and I think there's been such wisdom I've written down tons of little sound bites <laughs> that you said that I just love. So thank you for that. And the final question that I ask, as you know, because I know you listen to the podcast, but I ask everyone is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers of every generation in the world, what would you give them and why? I would give them 10 minutes of calm every single day. And the reason I would give 10 minutes of calm Because self-care has been branded, it's become this whole episode. It has to be all of this stuff. You've got to do this right now. You've got to do whatever. But I know that with 10 minutes of calm, you could do some deep breathing. You can do some visualizing. You can 
tap into or however you do it, like activate your parasympathetic nervous system and you can give yourself a sense of calm that you could achieve in a 90 minute nap in 10 minutes of calm. And I think that you then go through life and you then become a conduit for calm and your approach is much more measured. It's much more considered. You respond rather than react. You can give people compassion and empathy rather than be defensive. So I think 10 minutes of uninterrupted calm every day, I think that's enough time for mothers to be able to indulge without feeling guilty. And I love that gift because it's really accessible. And yeah, I totally agree with you. 10 minutes you know, even two minutes mm-hmm. of connecting with ourselves can be transformative. Mm-hmm. People don't mm-hmm. believe me when I say that, but it's true, isn't it? It really, it really can be. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I love this conversation and I look forward to seeing you in real life so I can give you a hug soon. Yes, you too. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my program, which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.